15 and Luke 16 uh, are connected. And it's basically, today is part two of the topic that we talked about last week of money and relationships. So this morning, we will be looking at one of the most significant questions ever asked, namely, is there life after death? Well, there's been a flood of articles in secular publications like Time magazine, Nat Geo, various uh, scientific journals, and many others, and they say, yes, there is life after death. Science is backing this up. And one of these articles said these, says this, theologians can debate all they want, but radiation oncologist Dr. Jeffrey Long says, if you look at the scientific evidence, the answer is unequivocally yes. Yes. Dr. Long goes on to say, this research directly addresses what religions have been telling us for millennia to accept by on faith, that there is an afterlife that there is some order and purpose to this universe, that there's some reason and purpose for us being here in earthly life. We're finding verification, if you will, for what so many religions have been saying. It's an important step forward, bringing science and religion together. While this whole subject of life after death is generating interest and data, and comment. It's interesting that Jesus has already answered that very question. So this morning I want to point you to Jesus' loving and truthful response to the very question, is there life after death? When it comes to the question about life after death, the question about heaven and hell, there is no more important person to listen to than to listen to Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the author of life. Philippians chapter 2 says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If there was anyone in this world that we should listen to, that should we, we that we should obey and trust when it comes to any questions about life after de- life and death and about heaven and hell, it should be Jesus Christ. Now, as your vicar, it is my job to bring you the Word of God. Not to change it, not to hide it, not to disguise it, but to share it as God's intended Word. So when it comes to the question about life and death and about heaven and hell, Jesus most certainly has a word for us. For some, a word of encouragement. For others, a word of significant challenge. But when it comes... But what is... What is God's desire for us as we discuss these cosmic, eternal questions? Well, Peter tells us what that will be in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, 
but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So this morning, the question is not merely, is there an afterlife? In this parable, Jesus presents us with a choice. So how will we respond to him? Will we fully embrace what he has done for us? Or will we look for excuses and look for alternatives? Jesus tells us a story about two men who arrive at very different destinations. Verse 19 says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple with fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. So Jesus tells us all we need to know about how rich this man really was. He is clothed in purple. Now in ancient times, purple dye was the most expensive colour to dye fabric. The purple dye called Tyridian purple was extracted from a shell creature and it took 10,000 of those little shell creatures to produce one gram of dye stuff and that almost would only dye the hem of a garment. So 10,000 of those little creatures behind me had to die just so a rich person could dye the hem of their garment. What does it tell us? What does Jesus tell us? This man was what? Clothed in purple. It wasn't just the hem of his garment. This man was clothed in purple. He was filthy rich. Jesus doesn't stop there. He tells us about the man's Reg Grundies. Who knows what Reg Grundies are? (laughs) So for those who don't know, Reg Grundies are undies. (laughs) Underpants. Australian slang. So he tells us about his red grundies. This man had undergarments made from fine linen. He's so rich that his undies are aristocratic. Yeah? And what else? He eats sumptuously, sumptuously every day. It's not will I eat or or can I eat, it's but it's how much will I eat. So the rich man has everything. And when he wants something, he gets it. He takes it. There's something else about the rich man that we don't uh, see explicitly in this text. We have to go to the backstory of the text. So what's in, what, what, what important thing did Jesus say before he gives us this parable? As we start uh, at the start of Luke 16, he tells a story about a dishonest manager. We looked at that last week. Some of those of you that were here or listened to the podcast or the, watched the service online, you would know that Jesus started chapter 16 with the story of the, dis- the, the, the dishonest manager, a manager who squandered his master's wealth. And Jesus tells us this, that in verse 13 of 16, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus tells us that the problem with money is that it so easily becomes a master. What we pursue, we serve. What we desire, we worship. 
For sound money is not a gift to be shared, but a God to be served. It's not just about having money, and money is not evil in itself. But Jesus knows the human condition, he that, that we take good things and we turn them into idols. For some people, when it comes to their security, when it comes to acceptance, when it comes to their identity, they pursue and idolize money. People like this can have God in their life, or they can have God out of their life. It doesn't matter because their security is in their wealth. On the other hand, those who worship the God of the Bible, for those who find their identity and their security in God, how should they treat money? There should be a posture of open-handedness when it regards money. Generosity is their hallmark because their security and true wealth is in God. Now when Jesus says this, where would, where, where would the religious elite in his audience identify their worship? Is it with God of the Bible or is it with money? Those religious people are praying and well, they're praying all their prayers they're the ones with the scriptures open. They're the ones at the temple offering sacrifice. Surely, if anyone has worked out worship, it's these religious leaders, we would think, wouldn't we? Then in verse 14, we just read verse 13, now we're in verse 14 of chapter 16. Jesus says, the Pharisees who were lovers, or sorry, the narrator, Luke says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things and they ridiculed him. There's a profound insight, the Pharisees, the religious elite, the ones that everyone looked to, when it came to worship, they were lovers of money. Then in verse 15, it says, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted amongst men is an abomination in the sight of God. So the story of the rich man and Lazarus is not merely a story of a man who had wealth. Jesus is painting a picture because the Pharisees, as did most of the religious elite, they believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing, that God's hand was on their life if you were rich. Righteousness and riches went hand in hand in the eyes of the Pharisees and the religious elite of Jesus' day. So to be rich and to be religious even was to, be, was to be, have some sort of religious justification about who you were. But Jesus says, but God knew their hearts. And in their hearts, they were far from God. From the outside, they had it all together. They were able to justify everything they did. But in their hearts, they were far from God. And that's the story. That's the rich man in this story. But there's another man. Verses 20 to 21 says, And at his gate lay, lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, unlike the rich man, Lazarus is underprivileged. He's crippled. He's very ill. There's no government welfare system in ancient Palestine. But there was an expectation that the poor, who were poor through no fault of their own, 
would be supported by the well-to-do, by those who were wealthy, through direct charitable giving and donations. So the well-to-do in the community had a religious obligation to help the poor with a meal, with fresh clothes, with a drink of clean water or some coins. Does the rich man do this? Does the rich man walk the short distance down the path from his front door to the gate of his compound and does he help Lazarus? No. Lazarus lays there in agony, not dreaming of a meal, but just food scraps. Now, when the original audience heard this, they would have automatically drawn this conclusion. Jesus is painting a picture about a blessed man and a cursed man because they believed that wealth and health equaled blessing and God's favour. But poverty, pain, sickness and suffering all bring curses. The rich man must have been faithful to God because on the outside he's very wealthy and wealth equals blessing and faithfulness. Lazarus, on the other hand, is unfaithful and cursed. And a lot of people do think that way, even in our 21st century context. But right now, we see a clue that Jesus is doing a different, or going in a different direction in this story. So who is it that has a proper and a legitimate name in this story? Who is it? We have an unnamed rich man, and Lazarus. Lazarus has a name. The poor man has a name. And so in ancient cultures, names carry a lot of weight. And the clue is in this story, it means that Lazarus has a name. And what is Lazarus' name? What is the meaning of his name? It is the one who God surrounds, the one who God protects, the one who God helps. But as he sits at the gate with the dogs, he's not looking like a man who God is helping. We would look at him and say... It looks like God has abandoned him. Thank goodness that God sees things a little different from us. When God looks at our life, he sees us in eternity. So if we pull back our frame of reference a little, we can see that God was faithful. Verse 22 says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The man who was poor, lonely, and abandoned, the one that everyone avoided, who lived a life of suffering upon suffering, finds himself in the presence of God. He's with the father of faith, Abraham. Abraham. He's with the heroes of the faith. He's in a place of blessing. He's in a place of comfort. He's in a place of paradise. So many today believe that death is the end and we just vanish into oblivion. Jesus says, no, there is life after death. And many that will be, and for many, that place will be paradise. paradise. Elsewhere in the Gospels, it talks about paradise as a party, as a feast, heaven as a celebration with music. This place is a glorious place. It's a place where you want to be. It's a place, but, but, but it's not the only place. Verse 22, the second half of verse 22 says the rich man also died and was buried. So two totally different lives. Both men died, 
It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how little money you have. It doesn't matter how good you were or how or where you grew up or, or what country you're from. What is common to all people is that we die. For many people who live in houses all around this church building, up, up there in that, in that uh, estate up there, The fear is not death itself. It is what's on the other side that is fearful. Because it's uncertain. It's unknown. But Jesus, the one who made you, He knows what is on the other side. Jesus wants us to have clarity. He wants us to walk in certainty. And as we see in this story, for some, it will be a place of paradise. But for others, like the rich man, they find themselves very far from home. So let's look at the description that Jesus gives us of this place that is very far from home. Pick it up in verse 22 again. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Some of you will ask, don't all people go to heaven? According to Jesus, the answer is no. The rich man is not at Abraham's side. The rich man is not in the place of comfort. He's in Hades the temporary abode of the dead, waiting in anguish for the return of Jesus and the final day of judgment. Jesus talks about that day in Matthew 25, 32 to 34. It says, When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate some people from others as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So you don't want to be a goat, do you? No. I've only taken snippets from the, and I encourage you to read the full text. This is just the highlight reel of what Jesus says in chapter 25. I encourage you to read the whole text because it references back to the rich man and Lazarus. So in these stories and narratives, Jesus speaks the truth in love. There is a heaven. There is a place of paradise. There is also Hades and a coming hell, a place of judgment. But Jesus tells us that such a place was not created for us. It was created for the devil and his demons. Yet, in our foolishness, we have rejected Jesus. And when you reject Jesus, you make an allegiance with the enemy of your soul, the devil himself. And what does Jesus say? In Matthew 12, 30, he says, Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. And what do we do? And where we place our allegiance in this life, those allegiances 
allegiances follow us into the afterlife. So whatever we do in this life, wherever we place our allegiance, they follow us into the afterlife. In this text, we see a man in anguish. In other texts, Jesus uses different imagery. In Matthew 13, he says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Revelation 14, he says, They have no rest day and night. In Revelation 20, he says, Then death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he or she will be thrown into the lake of fire. All of us will experience the first death. This is physical death. But some of us, those who reject Jesus, there will be a second death, a spiritual death. There's an old saying, isn't there, Natalie? If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. So what does it mean to be born twice? First, it's physical birth. Something we all experience. Because we're not cabbage patch kids, are we? No. <laughs> we all experience the, 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 first, the physical birth. But what does Jesus say to the Pharisee named Nicodemus? John 3.3 3. Truly I tell you, unless one is born again, they, shall, they cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be spiritually made alive this morning to see the kingdom of God. 2 Thessalonians says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with a, might, with a mighty angel in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and of the glory of his might. I don't think that there's a more devastating reality than to live away from the presence of the Lord. Some people might say, well, my life's fine. And I'm not a believer in the Lord. What do you mean it will be terrible to live apart from the presence of the Lord? In this life, all people on planet Earth are under the grace of God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Every person on planet Earth is a recipient of God's blessing. But a day will come when that will end. Imagine a life without the sun. Imagine life without warmth, cold, dark, a place that is deathly. Now think of that eternally without the Son of God. That's what Paul is saying to the Thessalonian church. Jesus' love and his kindness, all gone. God's blessing, gone. I heard someone say, if you don't know where you're going to go after you die, then it's not safe to die. <laughs> the truth is this morning, Jesus spoke of hell often and described it in, and, and, and he described it in graphically in graphic imagery because he knows the truth. Jesus knows what is on the other side and he loves you, he loves me and he speaks the truth in love. Jesus doesn't want you or me to enter a Christless eternity. 
He doesn't want us to be away from the presence of the Lord. So here's the big issue. There are people away from Him. And some of those you and I know and love. And I pray this morning for those who can hear me here and online that you are not one of them. This man in the story didn't expect things to go this way. He had his wealth. He had his blessing. He had, he, he, he had and his assumption is that all in all, that they would have continued with him in the afterlife. And yet, he finds himself very, very far from home. And he calls out, verse 24, Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. In death, this bloke is arrogant enough to still think that he is in control. He still thinks he can boss Lazarus around. So let's think about that for a moment. It's legitimate to think that the great chasm set between the rich man and Lazarus in eternity is evidence of the one that was present during the time on earth. The rich man made no effort to relieve Lazarus's suffering, whom he obviously knew, because in the afterlife, he not only acknowledges Lazarus, but he recognises him and calls to him by name. And what brings a double damnation to this rich man is that he still thinks he can treat Lazarus as a servant, asking that Abraham dispatch him immediately to fetch a measly drop of water. The rich man explicitly persists and fails to consider Lazarus as a person not even worthy of empathy or repute. The rich man wants Lazarus to serve him in hell, to comfort him in hell. Such is the foolishness of sin this morning. But the rich man, for the rich man there's no remorse. There's no I'm sorry. There's no reflection on the, on the, on the trivial distance between his front door of his house, between the front door of his house and the front gate where Lazarus lay in pain and distress. And so now the distance between the house and the gate is now surreal and eternal, unable to be crossed, unable to be traversed. And so the question is, what about those, whoever those might be, that are out at our front gates? The story of Lazarus and the rich man goes beyond the economics of social reversal. Jesus is radically addressing our contemporary capabilities regarding those who are at our front gates also. Who is my neighbour? And how can I better resource my neighbour? C.S. Lewis said this in his book, The Great Divorce. Hell, in all its tragedy, is the greatest monument to human freedom. As Romans 1, 24 says, God gave them up to their desires. All God does in the end with people is give them what they most want, including freedom from himself. What could be more fair than that? C.S. Lewis also wrote in The Problem of Pain, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do to wipe out the past sins 
and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they have been forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid, that is what he does. That is what hell is. Verse 25 and 26. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to, and none may cross from there to us. Jesus tells us the chasm between heaven and hell is fixed. There is no such thing as purgatory. That's a man-made idea. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament never talked about purgatory or taught about one. Jesus' teaching is binary. The chasm between heaven and hell is fixed. It's binary. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that face judgment. Jesus is showing us in this parable that we have one opportunity. One opportunity to come to the Lord and, and, and Saviour and deal with our rebellious ways. Now you won't be able to talk your way into heaven and somehow make some sort of deal with God and say, I, uh, God, try to get God to feel sorry for you. There's one life. One opportunity to acknowledge your maker and his great sacrifice for you. Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, eternity will cry out and say, you had more than enough time to respond to the gospel of Jesus. And if you're here and you haven't accepted Jesus' call to your life, for your life, it's not something to put off. Jesus is calling you home today. He's doing it now. And we will never know what tomorrow might bring. Verse 27 and 30 says, He said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may be warned, so, so that he may warn them. Least they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Look what the rich man is doing. He's, he's correcting Abraham. He thinks he's right. He thinks he knows what's best. And what's the issue? There's not enough evidence, Abraham. My brothers will end up here too. We need more evidence. Moses parting the Red Sea is not enough evidence. Manna from heaven is not enough evidence. God defeating Pharaoh is not enough evidence. The prophets coming one after the other, declaring the truth about God, about life and about death and about heaven and about hell. It's not enough. We need more. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Looking at the stars, the moon and creation is enough to say there's something bigger than us. 
In addition to creation, we have a conscience. Romans 2.15 says, It tells us that the law of God is written on our hearts and our conscience bears as a co-witness to God's laws. So we have creation, we have our conscience, and we have scripture, God's word to us. And ultimately, we have Jesus. And at every level, at every entry point, there's a message. And that message this morning is eternity. There is life after death. Let me close with Abraham's final words in the final verse. Verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should, be, someone should raise from the dead. This is the genius of Jesus. Jesus is a genius. He is telling us, listening is seeing. Listening is seeing. Swiss theologian Karl Barth once, once asked by a student whether the serpent literally spoke in the Garden of Eden. And Barth, Barth answered these words. He says, the important point is not whether he spoke, but what he said. And so the parable is more than a mere explanation about the furniture in heaven and the temperature of hell. No doubt countless first-rate preachers have stood in their pulpits with the binary indictment to identify with Lazarus, uh, more commonly with the rich man who ignored Lazarus. But other words, in other words, this story is inviting us to see the overwhelming evidence, evidence that reveals our life and loyalties as, as biased towards our own pleasures and calling us to see the gap, to see that chasm while we still have time. A good first-rate preacher would interpret this parable in such a binary way. Don't do that, do this, and be a good person. But if we truly listen to what Jesus is showing us, then I think we will see a third way not a binary way, not heaven and hell so much, but a third way. Because this parable seems to end without a satisfying conclusion. And when parables end without a satisfying conclusion in the scriptures, then there's a third way. There's something we have to do. There's something that we have to connect to. So are we supposed to, by our listening and seeing this jarring glimpse of the afterlife, are we supposed to leave our houses and go to our front gates of our communities? But what shall we say? And what shall we do? Abraham makes reference to a man rising from the dead. Have we not seen a man put to death for the compassion of the poor? Have we not seen a man put to death for, for, for uh, proclaiming God's mercy to all? Have we not seen a man put to death for audaciously absolving sin from anyone who asked? Have we not heard the testimony of that man, whose name is Jesus, who was raised from the dead, who was justified by God as the supreme incarnation of God's kingdom and his royal love? So, my friends, we are the rich man's siblings. And whether we've stuffed up our lives or the lives of others, or whether we thought that we're a good person or we still think we're a good person, because whoever we think we are, 
The fact remains that God also saw fit to send a man from the dead to awaken us. And when I read this parable, I'm astounded how undersized the rich man's requests are. A totally inadequate drop of water and a bearer of good news to tell others. As a church, as believers in Jesus, are we not called to do those very simple things too? Aren't we called to bring a degree of assistance, a degree of encouragement to others? Aren't we called to enlighten all we meet that God requires what we have forethought and that we have forethought and have caring for others? I think this parable strikes a chord very loudly, but we also, but we we should also be reminded that this parable is not a prediction. And because of the Holy Spirit, we, this church here, at Christchurch, have the authority and the power to rewrite the end of this parable. Because Jude, right. verse twenty-three says, "Save some by snatching them from the very flames of hell itself." And for others, help them to find the Lord by being kind to them. Our memories and our faith should be jogged again and again. That we, the redeemed, we who have seen a man raised from the dead, and that in his name we're called to share the living water, not just the drop off our finger, the living water, and the good news of God's love. To all those who need. So it is Jesus, the third way, that empowers us to stretch our imagination and live in a new and creative way. Please pray with me. Father God, I pray that you would turn us toward Jesus. I pray that each of us would have some sense of gratitude and a sense of peace. And also a desire to go out and be proclaimers of truth. Lord, let us not be people that hold the good news of Jesus Christ to ourselves. Let us not run from reality, but have us be people that speak the truth in love. And in Jesus' mighty name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.